0: Welcome to episode two of the On Meaningful Work podcast. This week we have a very special person whose uh, name is Penny Locasso. Penny has had two extraordinary careers. Her first career was 20 years in the oil and gas industry. Uh, After spending that time, she realized that this was not for her. Since that time, she has formed an extraordinary career as a speaker, a consultant and an educator. In this interview, we go through Penny's incredible journey from growing up on a farm to her successful career as an executive in the oil and gas industry to her now meaningful career as a fearless speaker and entrepreneur who is in constant demand from some of the biggest organizations in Australia. Hi Penny. Hi. (laughs) So, this idea came about because I really want to investigate what work means to people, mm. and how can people find meaningful work. And I th- when I when this idea came to me, you're one of the first people that came to mind that I have to I have to speak to about this.
1: Yeah,
0: and I think it's really because of your journey, like how you where you've started and what you're doing now. And I, and I've seen you speak, and I've seen you. I haven't seen you do workshops, but I've seen you do your thing. And there's just this. the most joy that radiates from you when when you're up there
2: (laughs) there is a joy
0: oh yeah it's true so just where i'd like to start is just your background like yeah who is who is benny where where did you come from
2: so Mm. i came from um the country oh yeah and i think it's always interesting because i meet it's funny now i'm i'm very interested in who people are as human Mm. beings and when you ask them that um i meet a lot of people now that have had a lot of success that you know were raised in um in rural settings and I I you know I wonder if there's any research around work ethic
0: and success you know related
2: to that so um so
0: were you on a farm yeah
2: so I grew up um in what is now you know an urban um Mm. epicenter Pakenham but back then you know Mm. we were on 140 acres so I lived on um farms Mm -hmm. all throughout my childhood um which I think in terms of uh independence and resilience mm. plays a huge role, or it did for me in terms of the sort of person that you become. Yeah,
0: and, and was it a hobby farm or was it a functioning...?
2: No, so mum um, mum bred cattle mm. and oh, we also yeah. um, had a thoroughbred stud, so she would have oh, 25, 30 horses on the property at any given time. Mm-hmm. Um, we all rode horses. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, yeah, I mean, look, I, the, my memories of those days are nothing but joy, you know, and mm. freedom. Just this mm. uh, unbelievable freedom. But I think also when you work, well, when you grow up on a farm, you know, you you have jobs yeah. and there's things that you just have to do. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, and so you up at
0: five in the morning milking. I
2: vegetables. wasn't. No, we didn't because mum bred them. We didn't mm-hmm. uh, milk them. But um, like, you know, I remember in my teenage years having to, mum would go away because um, she was a single mother as well. Mm-hmm. So mum would go away on um, certain trips and things with her friends occasionally. And, you know, um, I'd be up at six in the morning, um, feeding 30 horses, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: you know, at the age of 15. So I think it also, um, it taught me responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and self accountability. So that's kind of, yeah, where, where my journey began. And then, um, I studied law for a year which wow. is yeah. So <laughs> I got uh, into law at, at the age of eighteen, mm-hmm. and um, and did that for a year. And always wanted to be like a criminologist, very interested in um, how the brain works and yeah. why certain people do the things that they do, and, and where that, that trigger or tipping point is for people.
0: What made you choose law? Was it?
2: Something? Well, what made me choose law? Well, I I think because I liked the idea of um, of representing people who had done wrong. Mm. So I was, you know, criminal law was what I was fascinated Mm. in but I think really deep down I was more interested in criminology and at that Mm. time um, it wasn't as uh, fully fledged as what it is now. Mm -hmm. So I went into law thinking that that was the path to get there and Mm. then after a year I was like, oh this is boring, Mm. like all it is is research and, you know, paperwork and Mm. I was like, this is not for me. So Mm. um, it was funny because my career path was not set so Mm. I then... Nannied for a couple of years. Oh, wow. Okay. For um, a wealthy family in Brighton. Yeah. And, you know, because I was only 19, 20, and I mm. remember, well, I look back now and I always think it's so interesting that we're expected to work out the rest of our lives at that age. Yeah. Because you just, you have no idea. And I still mm. think it's funny, we do it to kids now. It's like you need to work out what your the rest of your life is going to look like from a career perspective. At 17. Yeah. It's insane. Mm. It's like, no, no, you don't. You need <laughs> to actually enjoy the fact mm. that you're 19 or 20 cuz you're mm. never going to be here again and just trust that the that whatever you do will breed the clarity you need mm. to actually find something that works for you but yeah. it's still we still try and push people down a path
0: and did you feel I suppose, pressure to do law from your parents or teachers? No, or, you know. I
2: never. My mum always said to me, do what you love, which mm. was probably very unique given mm. I'm 43, you know, of that generation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my mum said, I don't care what you do. As long as um, you're happy and you're not hurting mm. anyone, mm. she said, choose whatever path you want. Mm. So that always rings in the back of my mind. I did law for myself.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So I needed because I didn't know what I wanted to do. Mm. And also, you know, I wanted to live in the city. So that afforded me the ability to do that. And then basically I just started applying for jobs and I got a couple of jobs that were sort of, you know, at the bottom of the rung, administration. Mm -hmm. I remember the first job I used to do a lot of photocopying, (laughs) you know, like really bottom of the rung stuff and reception and things like that. Mm -hmm. And then I was really fortunate because e-commerce started to become a thing and I'd managed to land this job um, in NEC in a a sort of an e-commerce startup that they'd created and um, it just turned out it was, it was the right time. So I found a job in the paper and it turned out the job was with Shell mm-hmm. and they were looking for an e-commerce administrator to basically work with their B2B customers mm-hmm. to help them learn about e-commerce and how to use it for the, their business benefit. Mm-hmm. And because I had e-commerce experience and I was 22, um, I got the job because there was just no one out there. Wow. And that was the I'd say that was the real beginning of my career.
0: Yeah, at
2: twenty two. At twenty two I went into Shell and, mm-hmm. and what was brilliant about Shell was, you know, it um it's a little bit different now, which I think mm-hmm. most corporates are, but back then if you um if you had a good work ethic and you had, you know, sort of the initiative to learn things mm-hmm. There was just unlimited opportunity, you know, mm. and so every basically every two years thereafter, I just kept getting tapped on the shoulder. Hey, mm. why don't you try doing this? Why don't you try doing that?
0: That's amazing. Uh, like I think my perception of a big oil company is not that that it would be quite restricted or set in their ways and how they do things.
2: Not at all. So Shell was very good. Two things. One is employing really smart people Mm -hmm. and two uh, in identifying talent within the Mm organisation and looking at ways to um, fast track that potential. Mm -hmm. They they were always brilliant at that. And so I was just constantly surprised at how much faith they had in me to do things that I would have said I didn't have the skills to do. So the level of trust that was repli- was placed in me so i started in e-commerce i then went into managing their websites um mm. so all of the motorsport websites because we had them all based out of australia for oh, global wow, yeah. um and so you know i did that and i think i was like 24. um so i managed the ferrari website for mm. shell like you know and then from there i went into sales and i ended up you know in my sales roles mm. By the time I was in my early 30s, I was managing a business that turned over 1.2 billion a year um, across Australia That's and cool, New Zealand. Yeah. And I went into you know marketing management. Um, I managed brand and communication. So I used to manage the Ferrari team and all the, the motorsport mm-hmm. or the Grand Prix when they came out here, which was amazing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, brand and comms, marketing sales. And then what happened is I realized before change management became a thing, mm-hmm. Um I was always always loved people and helping them realise their potential, and I always loved making change mm-hmm. that was going to make things better. So um the last job I had before I had my son, um mm-hmm. they put me in uh, basically managing the program management office. So I had mm-hmm. like ten project managers delivering any change across the organisation, from you know transformation internally through to logistics, large logistics projects. Mm-hmm. And so I did that while I was pregnant um which was yeah like i say again so i loved change and um that was just i think that was a constant throughout my whole career
1: Yep.
2: and it was and then basically the last job i had in shell was probably the dream job so Mm. base they tapped me on the shoulder had an 18 month old son and Mm. they said uh we want you to come over to perth amidst the oil and gas boom Mm -hmm. um we're working on a world first floating lng technology which was Mm. you know billions of dollars and the organisation is going to grow from 200 to 1,000 people in the next five years. Mm-hmm. And we need someone to manage that cultural evolution with the leadership team. Mm-hmm. So I had like a blank canvas to do mm-hmm. whatever I wanted. And then they gave me a $280 million project to deliver a collaborative work environment.
0: So, so it seems like your, your career at Shell was really, I suppose, the ideal job or ideal career in a way. I mean, you kind of went from strength to strength. You took advantage of opportunities that came in your way. Mm. Did you feel, I mean, I suppose, as a woman in, a, in the oil industry, did you feel that that held you back? Never. Okay.
2: And this is where it's interesting. Mm. And I don't ever want to take away from the fact that I have no doubt there are women that are held back mm. because they're female in certain jobs and industries. Mm. But what I think is really interesting, and you know, I could give you a, a number of women that would say the same thing. Mm. My biggest advocates in oil and gas were men. Mm. I often found that the, if anyone was going to hold me back, it was the more senior women.
1: Wow, okay.
2: And so I actually think, I think the concept's called kneecapping. capping. Mm. There are a lot of women that get to senior positions. Again, not all of them, but I think what happens is because the road for them to get there has been very hard, mm-hmm. they don't want to make it easy for any female coming up after them. Mm. And so what I found in oil and gas is my biggest ambassadors were often senior executive men.
0: That's so interesting. Yeah. And so I suppose your career in Shell was going great, but when did these rumblings first start in that, this is not where I want to be, I'm meant for something bigger, do you recall? Yeah. Was it a moment or was it... No,
2: so people always say, I always get asked this question Mm. and they were like, what was the the moment? And I'm Mm. like, it wasn't like a light bulb. Mm. I always say it was more like a dimmer that gradually got turned up over time.
1: Mm.
2: And so I think... I was living an unbelievable life over in Perth, you know, mm. getting paid a, a hell of a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And and I was in an absolute bubble. It was the land of excess. Yeah. And I think that in itself
0: was Could You bless us in terms of time, like what year? Yeah,
2: it was 2000. So I was there 2012 to 2014. Yeah. So it was in the height of the mining and the oil and gas mm. boom, right? Mm. And it was the land of excess, and I think that was kind of the beginning and it's funny because it was kind of the most senior role i'd ever had in my career Mm. but going over to perth what i could not believe was the more money people were given the Mm. greedier they became Mm -hmm. and that was the first insight i had working over there Mm -hmm. people expected more the more you gave them Mm. and i was just sitting there going doesn't correlate you think that the more people had the more grateful they would become and that was that was just i think that was something that just was an insight and I didn't know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. Um, and and there was other things like, you know, I had girlfriends and we would, um, you know, that would, they were earning so much money. They'd go out and drop a thousand dollars on a weekend on clothes and think nothing of it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, every weekend. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, I started to see this stuff and it's, I'm not judging people. I mean, you live the life you want to live, but Mm -hmm. I was just watching all of this. And, and what I observed that was that people, it wasn't making people happier all Mm -hmm. this money. In many ways, it was creating the opposite. What I saw was that it was actually um, make a lot of people think that if you earn a lot of money, you have a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And what I observed is if you earn a lot of money, often you spend a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there was a lot of people with a lot of debt. Yeah. Um, and, mm-hmm. and what that created was an unhappiness because mm-hmm. they became attached to jobs that they didn't love.
0: Yeah. Did you see the sort of status anxiety in that? Yeah. I need to up the Joneses next door, you know? Oh.
2: Yeah. Absolutely, and and the pressure it put on people, mm. you know, to to perform and stay in these jobs that weren't making them happy, mm. because they were tied. It was like golden handcuffs. They were tied mm. to debt, mm. um, and there was just there was no out mm. as far as they could see. Mm. So it, it was little things like that I started to notice, and also I think there were things I started to know notice from a values perspective that just didn't sit right with me anymore. Mm. And I'm not going to be an arse and say they weren't always there. Mm. I think I'd chosen not to see them. Yeah. And it was I got to a point where I was like, "How did I not notice this stuff before?" And Mm -hmm. you know what? Even though I'm not making these decisions by actually sitting in rooms and listening to these discussions, Mm -hmm. I'm actually a part of it, Mm -hmm. whether I like it or not. And so it wasn't a moment; it was like a dimmer being turned up. And then there was a series of events that played out in a way that I never imagined, Mm. that basically led me to a point that I'm very grateful for. But Mm. at the time, I was sitting there going, "Oh, this is a disaster."
0: Mm. Can Can you speak to those?
2: Yeah. So what happened was um, I'd been sent to Shell, sent over to Perth as like an expat. So as I said, I was getting paid a hell of a lot of money to be over there. Mm -hmm. And at the end of my two year assignment, um, Shell said to me, uh, we'd like you to rebase here permanently, which meant that I gave up a lot of the benefits I had of being sort of an expat. Mm -hmm. And I had a young son Mm -hmm. and uh, they'd call me back from maternity leave early with another great opportunity. Mm -hmm. So um, a young son, I'd worked my ass off, hadn't really spent a lot of time with him and the offer that they gave me to stay there um, didn't compensate me, I think, for what I was giving up in terms of family back mm. home. Mm-hmm. Um, and just the cost of living in Perth was insane. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, you know what, I'm not going to accept the offer. And so I said to them, I'll go back home. Mm. And uh, I think they were a bit surprised. And what had happened is the business that had parented me back home had been sold off to a Dutch trading house. So mm. all of the um, shell service stations and the you know, marketing business. So they said, well, if you go back home, you risk being sold off to this Dutch trading house and working for a company you know nothing about, Mm. or you could potentially be made redundant. And Mm. I was like, I've been here 16 years. I've had an amazing career, Mm. maybe it's time. So I just Mm. said, that's fine, I'll take my chances. Wow. And that was pretty brave because not many people did that. Mm. Um, no one left Shell. Yeah, you know, like most people have been there twenty years, no one left. Mm. And so um, while all that was going down, I got headhunted by BHP Billiton for a very senior role working with their global leadership team, mm-hmm. um, which was even more money mm-hmm. and uh, gave me access to their board. You know, and travelled to London and New York every quarter. Crazy mm. stuff. Wow. So all of that. So basically, told Shell I was um, going back home. Two weeks before I got home, they finally told me I was redundant. Mm-hmm. They were going to pay me out. So that meant I had a lot of money in my pocket. Mm-hmm. Um, BHP Billiton uh, were interviewing me. Mm-hmm. So I came back to Melbourne, relocated the family, and I went through about four interviews with the BHP job, and it mm-hmm. all fell through. Wow. So young son, uh, no job, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> and sitting there going, and, and a pocket full of money, and yeah. sitting there going, what am I going to do? Mm-hmm. And that was the moment when, when I didn't get that job at BHP Billiton, it was like, you know what, maybe I'm just going to create space. Mm-hmm. And I think this is the, probably the, the biggest learning for anyone who wants to make a career change. I think it's very hard to work out what matters to you, mm-hmm. what gives you meaning mm-hmm. when you're caught up in a full time job. Yeah. You need yeah. to check out. And mm-hmm. I think checking out for a month is yeah. not enough. So I said, I'm going to give myself six months.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I'm going to invest in myself and I carved out a chunk of money that I call my personal development fund Mm -hmm. and I'm just going to support myself for six months and I'm Mm going to see where this leads me.
0: That's incredible. So I'm going to maybe bounce around a bit here. Mm -hmm. Um, So firstly, in your career in Shell, at your peak, did you have this feeling of success? Did you feel successful?
2: That's a really good question. It's funny because I, so many people used to say to me, you know, from the, from the outside looking in that I was successful. Mm. Like it was amazing where I'd gotten to, yep. especially starting at the bottom. Yeah, I mm. literally started at the bottom. Um, did I feel successful? I didn't feel unsuccessful, mm-hmm. but I never sat there and thought I've made it. I think I'm one of those people that continuously raises the bar. And I think that's great because you're always trying to stretch yourself, but what I realized was that it was exhausting me, mm-hmm. and equally it was stopping me from being present and in the moment. Mm-hmm. I was so future focused that everything that I was doing was for the next step for the next step.
0: Yep. And also in terms of money, like you, you were earning a lot a, of money a lot of money. yeah how, how did that factor into your I suppose your ambition and your, your view of what, what you wanted to do or? Did that come to a point where it was about the money,
2: or in my when I was working at Shell? yeah. No, like it's funny. I I never sort of it. It wasn't about the money. No, I mean mm-hmm. I earned good money, but I don't ever recall that being my motivator. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it was always about seeing what I was capable of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the money was a bonus. Yeah. But I think what's interesting is leaving that and turning your back when mm-hmm. you have earned so much money mm-hmm. for such a long period of time and going to zero, yeah. you know, every month, mm-hmm. I never anticipated how um, how that was going to impact me mm-hmm. and how much I had attached financial gain mm-hmm. to to success. Yeah. I never realized how programmed I was until I left in that space. Mm
0: -hmm. James Altucher, who's another podcaster and business writer, he has a saying, don't attach your net worth to your self-worth.
2: Oh, so true. Did
0: did you find that that was the case at any point? That your your net worth was, or your self-worth rather, was tied to your bank account or were you...?
2: Absolutely. So I didn't take a salary after I left for three years. Mm, Wow. Right? And, And I knew, like I said to myself, I can't expect to make the same money I was making at Shell, yeah, yeah, um, overnight, Mm. so how much time am I going to give myself to reinvent and how much am I willing to invest in myself to make that happen? Mm. Because it takes money to make money. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I made that conscious choice and I can't, I think the hardest thing throughout that three years, like I said, I never realised. I kept questioning myself as to whether I was crazy because I wasn't, I think I made, Mm -hmm. in the first two years, I think I made Mm
1: $25,000,
2: which was like nothing.
1: Yeah.
2: But but now I know that's a reality for most businesses. Mm. It's not just me. And so Mm. I kept sitting there going, I'm not cut out for this. I'm not going to be successful. Mm. And what was crazy was, even in the first two years, so many people externally kept saying to me, oh my God, I've been watching your journey and I can't believe what you've achieved in such a short to- time. Mm, mm. It's amazing and totally inspiring. Mm. And I was, I felt so, um, what would you say? I felt like I was living alive. People were seeing this. I yeah. felt like I was lying to people. Mm. So what I did and God, I could go back and find it. I actually wrote a post on LinkedIn because I was like, I'm sitting here not earning any money and all these mm. people are thinking I'm successful, mm. right? And so i got on linkedin and wrote a post and basically said if you're following me and your definition of success is financial gain Mm. then i'd actually say unfollow Mm. because i'm not making any money Mm. and i think people were gobsmacked because people don't talk like that on linkedin Mm. yeah Yeah. Yeah. i said i'm not making any money but if Mm. your definition of success is someone who's actually living a life Mm. that is totally aligned to what fulfills them gives them meaning and lights Mm. them up every day then i'm your person. Yeah. And I, that was liberating doing that because I think I did that as much for myself as I did for other people. One, I, yeah. I want to be totally transparent in how hard it is mm-hmm. to actually create a career that is meaningful and fulfilling.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and two, I, I needed to really challenge this mindset around success doesn't equal financial gain.
0: Yeah, I, I, I suppose one of the things that I suppose since I started my journey, the thing that kept popping up for me was imposter syndrome. And it sounds like that's what you were, were battling
2: yeah early on.
0: and I think that's that's a brilliant way to I suppose diminish it is just be honest and be transparent like
2: this absolutely is, this
0: is who I am and this is what I'm going through And
2: but even yeah. now you know it surprises me I'm just gonna let my dog in it yeah. surprises me how many people constantly say to me because mm. I'm what now I'm three and a half years into the company mm. constantly people are saying to me oh my god it's amazing like what you've done in three and a half years is insane mm. And I'm still sitting there going, I'm not anywhere near the salary I had. Mm. But I, I've now learnt to let go of that yeah. because what I realise is that money doesn't equal happiness. Mm. I mean, there's 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 a whole piece of research in that documentary mm. Happiness talks about mm. it. Once you get over, I think it's like seventy five thousand US yeah, in salary, no there is no increase in your happiness. I think mm. in in many regards, the the more you get over that, in sometimes uh, in some way it goes down, your happiness goes down. Because the more people earn and have, often the more fear they have around losing it. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I've realized is I don't, I don't even need to earn the money that I earned before because Mm -hmm. all I was doing was just spending money for the sake of spending it. Mm -hmm. And in many regards now, it's like, you know, I've just started to read the book Slow, Mm -hmm. um, which is a brilliant book. And it's all around slowing down how we live Mm -hmm. in order to actually just be. And I've just been thinking the last couple of weeks, what can I actually do to actually remove more excess from my life mm-hmm. and I've I mean I've scaled down significantly in the last four years mm-hmm. um, and the more I reduce the material things that I have mm-hmm. the more happy I become Yeah. because what I've realized is so much my happiness is not found in the things that I own and it used I used to think it was mm-hmm. what where my happiness is now found is in the experiences that I have mm-hmm. and the human beings that mm-hmm. I get to hang out with.
0: Okay, so, so going back, I think, a bit to, say, a childhood, and, and I watched your TED Talk, which I loved, and, uh, well, we do have something in common in that we're both brought up in Catholic
2: yeah. families.
0: And could you just tell the story about the confession experience and yeah. how that, what, what that did for you?
2: Yeah, so um, I was seven mm-hmm. um, and raised Catholic. And it was funny, I went to a Catholic school because my parents wanted me to have a good education. They weren't mm-hmm. um, hugely religious. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically, I was seven years old, and um, the first confession, I don't even know if they do it anymore. Um, The first confession was basically the whole class had to prepare to go and confess to the priest. So Mm -hmm. I kind of described the story of, you know, imagine yourself as a small child stepping into a cold, dark wooden box Mm -hmm. with a scary old bloke adorned in a white gown, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. that concept just I thought was weird at the age of seven. And my Mm -hmm. mom had always encouraged us to be curious and mm. to ask questions. Mm. And so I went to my teacher at the time who wasn't um, a very friendly woman and um, said to her, what's the point of mm. confession? Like, why do we have to do this? And she basically said, if you need to ask questions like that, then clearly you're not ready. And so she held me back and I wasn't allowed to confess with the rest of the class. you know. And it was this whole big build up. Yeah, yeah. I was held back for a month and then I had to confess alone. And I, like, I look back on that and I just go, All that was about was conforming. Mm -hmm. Don't ask questions that we don't have the answers to. So rather than, you know, say, oh, that's an interesting question, let's explore that. And Mm -hmm. I think for me, I'm so agnostic now when it comes Mm -hmm. to religion because what I learned, you know, from um, the Catholicism is that there's so many things that they don't want us to question. Mm
0: -hmm. Absolutely.
2: And uh, I just don't think for me that it cultivates the sort of behaviours that I want to have in my life. And so much of it, and it's not just, the, you know, the Catholic religion, be it governments, mm-hmm. it's, it's all about um, conforming. Mm-hmm. So we don't want people challenging the status quo. We mm-hmm. don't want them asking questions we can't answer because that means that they're going to disrupt things or yeah. make things hard for us.
0: But I think what's really interesting about that story is, is that was a formative experience for you. Yeah. And that, I think, led to what you're doing now. And what you're doing now is helping people find their potential, helping people challenge the status quo.
2: Yeah, so what we teach now is intentional adaptability. You know, Mm -hmm. I teach people how to effectively um, navigate the future off a foundation of what actually gives them meaning, um, Mm -hmm. but equally um, do that in, you know, the technological evolution where many of us are adapting and it's not conscious Mm -hmm. and therefore Mm -hmm. it's impacting our mental health in a way that I think is actually potentially destroying humanity and all the things that make us great. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I definitely think, gosh, I had no idea, you know, some uh, 35 years later how that moment would impact me. But yeah, it definitely, I think the more we can ask questions, the more curious we can be, the more we challenge the status quo. Mm -hmm. If things don't make sense, that's where the magic is. That's where so many of us should be playing, but people, Avoid mm. the things that don't make sense because it's hard to solve that stuff. Mm. And also you can be seen as a pain in the ass.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think besides the story, are there any other formative experiences that in your childhood that I think made you who you are? Or?
2: I think probably the the real defining moment for me was not so much in my childhood. It was uh, it must have been about seven years ago now. Mm. Um, so I had a, I had an uncle who never had any children um, mm. and he He always believed in me, and I think it's important. I see with children all the time Mm -hmm. to have a mentor outside of their parents, Mm -hmm. who actually just believes in them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Always believed in me, you know. Like from a very young age, he uh, he paid for me to go and do my VCE at a private girls' school, Mm -hmm. because my mother, you know, obviously wouldn't wasn't able to afford that raising three kids on her own. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Um, He bought me my first Mac when I was, you know, 15 years old. Mm Uh, He gave me a house to live in rent-free when I was 22, so I could get ahead for a couple of years. Mm, Um, I spent all my school holidays going to his house, you know, and he was a doctor, Mm -hmm. um, very successful property developer. So built these massive medical centers um, Mm in the, in the eighties before it was a thing. So Mm -hmm. he was very entrepreneurial, very vicious. And so I just learned a lot by being around him. Mm -hmm. And I was always the closest to him. And so he had a lot of success. And was kind of the one in the family that was always put on the pedestal as Mm. the success story. Um, And seven years ago, at the age of 60, um, I got a phone call at seven o'clock on a Thursday evening. And it was my brother saying that they'd found him um, off the edge of the Frankston Pier dead. Oh, no. Yeah. And I can't tell you, like you talk about to find... I still get goosebumps now, Mm. you know. And um, that, that just shook my world in a way that i can never imagine so that in many in, in multiple ways because the first thing was he'd never been a depressed person mm-hmm. um he'd actually been quite the opposite he'd had a guru uh, his whole life mm-hmm. was an avid he'd been meditating for you know gosh something like 45 years mm-hmm. probably the calmest person i'd ever met mm-hmm. Um, But what had happened was his business um, had gotten into trouble. He'd over invested in Mm -hmm. the next big opportunity, which was building a massive hospital Mm -hmm. down in Berwick
1: um,
2: and built this huge, you know, had this huge block of land and had all the plans and everything, but Mm -hmm. couldn't get the funding to build the hospital. My mum and nan were his biggest investors. Mm -hmm. So when he took his life, my grandma and my mother lost everything. And they had worked, you know, they were farming people, so mm-hmm. that, that money was hard-earned. Yes. So I knew in that instant my, my mother and my grandmother had lost everything. Mm-hmm. I lost the greatest mentor um, I'd ever had in my life.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And um, the way he'd taken his life was absolutely horrific. He'd mm-hmm. weighted himself down with dumbbells and dropped himself off the edge of the Frankston Pier. And so I had to go and identify his body the next day. And he, mm-hmm. like, he still had the chains around his neck. So mm-hmm. I can't... That 24 hours um, changed so much for me because the he was had always been my definition of success. Mm-hmm. And when that happened, it made me challenge what success looked like.
0: Yeah, that's that's a really tragic story. I'm sorry for that.
2: Yeah, it yeah. is. But but equally, like they say, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And mm. I think that was seven years ago. And without realizing it, because I then got the job at Perth and all the rest of it, mm. um, I didn't realize how much that was churning inside of me in terms mm-hmm. of I always believed that what he had was success. You know, he had massive houses and fancy mm-hmm. cars and all of mm-hmm. that. And that was the role model I had around success. And when he took his life like that, I was sitting there going, this is not success. Mm-hmm. Um, this can't be success. And so if this isn't what success looks like, well, then what actually is success? Mm-hmm. And I think that was the beginning. Wow. Yeah, that was transformative.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So suppose success, when you're it to material things, mm-hmm. is so... Delegate it could be gone tomorrow. Yeah, and just from that experience. Do you find that now inside of you? You have a solid foundation of what that would be
2: I feel Extremely comfortable um, With how I've defined success and how I live my life now Mm. and it's funny I said to my mum not so long ago We were sitting in my kitchen It was about 10 o'clock at night and I said to her know that if something happened tomorrow And I was gone Mm -hmm. I died completely happy and fulfilled Mm -hmm. And I don't think many people can say that. And so for me, you know, success and happiness are intertwined. I don't think you can have one without the other. Mm -hmm. And so for me, you know, when I think about what makes me successful and happy, it's that I am humanly connected with people who help me look at the world through a different lens. Mm -hmm. Um, I am successful if I'm positively impacting the lives of others. But my biggest measure of success is that my son, who is currently eight, by the time say, he's 20, mm-hmm. when someone asks him about his mother, mm-hmm. he says, I love my mum exactly as she is. Mm-hmm. And he's, wow. I say that because he said that to me recently. Mm-hmm. He said, I love you exactly as you are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if he's still saying that about me when he's mm-hmm. in his 20s, um, that for me is success because so much of what I've done has come off the bag of um, him looking at me and how i'm living my life Mm -hmm. and how that impacts his life yeah yeah so when i was making all of the significant changes which included me leaving his father after 18 years Mm -hmm. um all of those changes i made were because i didn't want him growing up looking at me thinking that ego status money Mm -hmm. was what brought happiness Mm -hmm.
0: And I think, thank you for that, because that's what I was reaching for with with the previous question. Yeah. And I think this uh, ties into something I've been thinking about, which is this concept called Uh anti-fragility, which is by Nassim Taleb. He wrote a book called Anti-Fragile. And I haven't read the book, but I've been thinking about this concept where he says there's there's fragility, where that glass over there, you drop it on the floor, it breaks, Mm. and it's gone. There's robustness, which is kind of like an oak tree which is robust, you know, it could stand the test of time. Yeah. But then a huge storm comes along and it knocks it down. Yep. So that is not the opposite of fragility. The opposite of fragility is what he calls anti-fragility, which is something that would gain from adversity, that would gain from obstacles, that would gain from tough situations, where tough situations actually make the thing or the system stronger. Mm. And I think just with your previous story, it was... And I think attaching success to material things like money or property is a fragile way to live, I think, because that's where all your self-worth is tied into. It could be gone in a second. And I think what you just described is something that's anti-fragile because I think no matter what hardships come your way, you can, you can only gain from that.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. Mm. I, I totally agree. I, you know, it's like the old what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Mm. The most horrible things that have happened in my life are the things that have made me who I am now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And every single one of them, whilst they've been extremely hard, mm-hmm. um, they've made me a better person.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And it's funny, you know, because some people, I, I always talk about the, the mission that I have, which is to um, teach 10 million human beings how to future-proof happiness by 2025. Mm-hmm. And I find it really interesting that in this day and age, the word happiness polarizes people.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. and. Uh, Oh, I, find, I find that fascinating, like the fact that now that you know, we don't even like the word happy anymore. Mm-hmm. And when people ask me what I mean by happiness, I talk about happiness for me is being able to ride the wave of every emotion mm-hmm. because we know life's going to throw shit at us that we can't control.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But having the skills, the resources and the, the right support around you mm-hmm. to be able to come out the other side of that just a little bit better than what you were before.
0: That's incredible. How, how did you reach that definition?
2: I have no idea. Okay. It just yeah. came to me um, it, it, through learning, I mm-hmm. think, you know, and, and that's what I say, because I think happiness is not about skipping down the street, painting rainbows. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's about saying, I'm going to allow myself to feel every emotion mm-hmm. that I have the capacity to feel when mm-hmm. it makes sense to feel it. And I think that's probably the other thing that makes many of us unhappy. We suppress emotions. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, we suppress emotions. Because we suppress emotions because we don't want anyone to think that we're not the social media perfection that so many of us are aspiring to be. Mm. But it's just bullshit. It's like suppressing your emotions is just a way of um, creating, I think, a volcano eruption down the track.
0: Absolutely, and I think the, the the distinction I make is between happiness and meaning. And I think happiness, I mean, it can have a, a very superficial meaning in that I could spoon. A jar of Nutella, and that will make me happy. Short term. Short term. Or I could lie on a beach drinking cocktails for a week, and that would make me happy. But you extend that, and you do it. You lie on a beach for too long, you end up hungover and bloated, and yeah, you spoon too many jars of Nutella, and you know the consequences of that. Yeah. Uh, but but for me, meaning is it's it's this question of why do mountain climbers keep climbing mountains, mm. even though mountain climbing, I mean to me, I'm not a mountain climber, but it seems horrific. You're dealing with minus zero temperatures, you're dealing with frostbite, you're dealing with all sorts of, you know, really uncomfortable situations. But I think to me is reaching that peak and having a look at the horizon, that must be worth something that you can't describe. And that's why they keep doing it.
2: Everything mm. that has happened in my life that has been truly amazing has been hard work. Mm. Yeah, like nothing, I, this is, and this is where the misnomer is. We want things to be easy, but the reality is the magic lies in the things that are hard.
1: Mm.
2: You know, even having my son, like um, having a child, there's no. this misnomer that it should be easy. And mm. I remember, you know, we, we had this whole... Um, plan of you know we're going to pay off our home we're going to travel and Mm. all these things that we wanted to tick off before we had a child Mm. and my ex-husband and i we got to this point and again we you know we wanted to have established careers we ticked all the boxes and we're like right Mm. now it's time to have a baby Mm. and two years later we couldn't have a kid yeah Yeah? and so but we eventually did and what was interesting about that process was the minute we stopped trying to have a child and said you know what this is consuming us it's it's actually destroying us I fell pregnant within a month. Wow. Yeah. So ha- even having a baby was really hard work, but God, I tell you what, I'm actually grateful now that it was hard work. I wasn't at the time mm, mm. because I can't tell you how much more appreciative I am of the fact that I have this little human in my life. Mm. <laughs> like, um, yeah, like if I had have given up, I would never have realized um, mm. the beauty or the magic of having a child that helps me look again, look at the world through a different lens. Yep.
0: And I think that's why I want to call this podcast On Meaningful Work, mm. because uh, I suppose we get this this bias that you look at, say, especially in the tech sector, I think. Yeah. You look at successful people, you look at movies like The Social Network, and uh, there's always this montage sequence of them working out equations on a bathroom mirror, and then, and then boom, there are billionaires. But I think Meaningful Work really comes from grit and resilience and those qualities. And you know, sometimes there's obviously luck involved.
2: I think there's always a little luck. Mm. There has to be, yeah? Because I think timing, and you would know this, yeah? You can have an amazing idea as an entrepreneur, Mm. but if your timing's off, it doesn't matter how good the idea is. So I think there's always an element of luck, but I think 95% of it is Mm. just damn hard work.
0: Another thing I want to talk to you about is fearlessness. Yeah. And especially, I think, when you had gone through your career at Shell, you would come down to Melbourne, there was that three-year gap where you had no salary. Mm. How did you manage your fear then?
2: So I I think what's interesting to me, and I I say fearless and I put less in brackets. (laughs) Because I've never, in all the amazing people I've met in the entrepreneurial space or people Mm -hmm. doing work with meaning, never met anyone who doesn't have fear. Mm What I've met is people that get better at stepping into fear because they know they'll come out the other side better. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I still have massive fear. I've had Mm -hmm. fear throughout the whole journey. Like you spoke about imposter syndrome. I don't Mm -hmm. think fear ever goes away, Mm -hmm. Um, but I think it's how you you use that fear. You can either use that fear to debilitate you Mm -hmm. um, and create a mindset that actually stops you from realizing your potential. Or you can say, you know what, if I'm afraid Mm. and this feels really uncomfortable, that means I'm growing. And that's how I have overcome the voice in my head saying, you've lost the plot. You've gone crazy. What makes you think you can pull this Mm. off?
0: I think an extraordinary story from your career is the the stream sword episode. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you get please. Talk about that. Tell that story,
2: yeah. I so let me be very clear. That was never done as a publicity stunt, right? Yeah, I never yep. that that is a great example of unintended consequences. Yep. So, um, what happened was gosh, it must have been 2 years ago now, Nelly. Um, I got asked to speak at a conference in Melbourne called Level Up. Mm-hmm. And the conference was for about 120 women and it was all about levelling up your career. Mm-hmm. And they said, can you come and speak to these women about tactics for happy change? Mm-hmm. How do you actually make happy change in your life? So mm-hmm. said, yeah, I can do that. So um, I was like, how? I knew the other women that were speaking because it was a full day conference. They were all amazing. I knew mm-hmm. they'd be on their A game. And I'm like, how the hell am I firstly going to stand out amongst mm-hmm. all these amazing women? But two, how am I going to get the women in that room to walk out willing to step into fear in a way that they've never done before mm-hmm. and realize that without stepping into fear, you can't realize your potential.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And so I've been mulling over this for weeks. And it was one of those moments where at 2 a.m. in the morning, I woke up and I went, that's it. Mm-hmm. And the next morning I rung my father, who's now 77, and mm-hmm. I told him what I was going to do. And I knew when he endorsed it mm-hmm. and said to me, that's your best idea yet, that I hadn't lost the plot. <laughs> Because I was like, if he's, imp- if he's uh, telling me to do this, mm. then I'm okay. So um, what happened was I walked out on that stage and it was funny, I had the graveyard shift, yeah, and they were, so I was on at 2.30 in the afternoon and they were serving wine at lunchtime. So that oh, was the wow. other challenge. How am I going to <laughs> keep them awake? How am I going to keep them awake? So I walked out on that stage mm. and um, I had a, like a bohemian wraparound dress on and mm. I undid the dress with, and basically... I dropped the dress and I said, love me or hate me, you will not forget me. Mm -hmm. And if there is only one thing you take away from today, it's that happy change is found when you learn to get comfortable in discomfort. Mm -hmm. And I can honestly tell you, it doesn't get any more fucking uncomfortable than this. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason I did that was because if there's one thing I've learned about women, be Mm -hmm. they tiny or or curvaceous, Mm -hmm. every woman I know has body image issues. Mm And as a, you know, I was 41, as a a 41 year old with a body built for comfort, not for modeling. (laughs) I knew that there wouldn't be a woman in that room that couldn't relate to how uncomfortable that felt. Mm -hmm. But equally, getting them to feel that with me enabled them to realize what it actually felt like to make change that was actually going to be meaningful in your life. Mm And what happened thereafter was nuts. So Shari um, Rubinstein, who's a good friend of mine, runs mm-hmm. One Roof, mm-hmm. she said to me, that was phenomenal. She said she was in the audience. She said, you have to put that on social media. Mm. And I said, really? I said, people are actually going to think like from my corporate days, mm. if I put this on LinkedIn, people are going to think I've lost the plot, right? <laughs> And then I was like, you know what, that's it. That's exactly what I'm going to say. So I put Mm -hmm. it on um, LinkedIn and I said, it's official today. I have lost the plot. Mm -hmm. I've just delivered a keynote, my bathing suit, and this is why I did it. Mm -hmm. And basically it went viral with over 55,000 views on LinkedIn. And I didn't even know you could go viral on
0: LinkedIn. Yeah. It's incredible for LinkedIn.
2: It was insane. I got emails from all around the world where people Mm -hmm. were saying, this is authentic leadership. Mm -hmm. This is someone who's willing to walk their talk. And people saying to me, you doing that has just um, made me realize that there are things I've been afraid of doing and nowhere near as scary as what you just did mm. so now i'm going to do this I oh, people yeah. tell me they're going to leave relationships get to leave jobs mm-hmm. people i'd never met mm. and then it got picked up by all this media around the world yeah <laughs> And i think the other thing that was absolutely hysteri- hysterical um jet swimwear i wore a jets bathing suit mm. and I, I wore it because i love their stuff it was mm. They've now become like a, a huge sponsor and send me swimwear <laughs> all the time. And recently featured me in their 20-year mm. video um, to celebrate their 20 years of jets yeah. with, um, you know, supermodels um, like is it Jessica Gomes and uh, Sophie Faulkner, who's a TV mm. celebrity. Like I was in this video, um, you know, dressed in swimwear, talking mm. about how to uh, how to empower and make women feel confident.
0: I think that's extraordinary. That's (laughs) an incredible story, and I'll definitely put up a link to that video. But I've seen that video, and I think I was getting sweaty palms watching you do that. Yeah. But you just looked so confident and so kind of centered in yourself. What was going on inside when you took your robe off? Oh my
2: god! So I don't. I mean, I've done a lot of speaking over the years, Mm -hmm. even when I was at Shell, and um, I don't get nervous speaking anymore. I get Mm -hmm. I get like a a positive energy, but Mm -hmm. not nerves. But when I was about to do that, I was shaking. Mm. And but what happened was... And this is probably, again, one of the most powerful things that's ever happened in my life. Doing that and standing on that stage was a defining moment for me because whilst I was shaking, when I took that dress off and stood there in my bathing suit Mm. and watched the response on people's faces,
1: Mm.
2: for the very first time in my life, I realised in that moment that I didn't give a shit anymore what people thought of me Mm. and not from a place of arrogance. But I just didn't care for the judgment of others. What I realized in that moment was that as long as I was true to myself mm-hmm. and what mattered to me, it didn't matter what anyone thought of me anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, the only judgment I needed in life was my own. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can't tell you how liberating that was.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And so now, you know, I, I don't, um, you know, I run this fearless masterclass and one of the number one fears, especially for women, is the judgment of others. Mm-hmm. I don't care anymore for the judgment Mm. of others. There's a couple of people in my life who I really value their opinion and I care what they think of me. Mm. Um, But if other people don't like me or think I'm an ass or an idiot, Mm. I'm okay with that because I figure if I'm true to myself and I live a life that is meaningful for me, I will attract the people Mm. that that makes sense to. Mm. And that's what I found happens.
0: That's extraordinary. Nothing is, I suppose, because that's something i've struggled with is just i was an an incredibly shy Mm. public speaker and but now i'm running events and it was just through i think doing it over and over over again yeah but do you think this fearlessness is something innate in you or can it be taught to other people can it be coachable
2: yes and yes Mm. yeah Yeah. so i think we are all born with a level of resilience Um, All of us and I look at you know, I've got a brother and a sister. There's three of us. I'm the middle child Mm. We were all born all raised exactly the same way Mm. and anyone who's got siblings knows this Mm. But we all have different levels of resilience Mm. because that was just innate It was how and my level of resilience was always higher than the other two. I don't know why but it just was Mm -hmm. Um, however, I Think that even though we all start from a different base. We all have the potential to increase our resilience Mm. And the only way to do that, and I talk about this over time, is learning to get comfortable with discomfort. Mm. It's feeling fear and doing it anyway, Mm -hmm. providing it's not life threatening. Yeah, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I think everyone has the potential to fear less. Mm -hmm. Um, And you may not, I mean, you may not get to the point where you're a person who can jump out of planes, for example, Mm -hmm. but it's not about comparison. It's Mm -hmm. about being the best version of you. Mm. So I think is everyone can raise the bar and be more courageous. And yeah. I think challenging yourself to do that, from what I've observed, actually means that you will live a more full life.
0: Just from your workshops, do you, do you have any tips for people who are looking to be more fear less in brackets? Yeah. Any like practical things that they could kind of get up and do? It's
2: two things that I, mm-hmm. um, two things that I advocate that I, and I advocate, only advocate stuff that I use myself. So mm-hmm. one is, um, there is a whole concept around micro bravery Mm-hmm. And if you want to become more fearless or more courageous, like with any change, the best way to do it is in bite-sized pieces. Mm-hmm. And so micro-bravery is doing little things every day that scare you. And it, it's got to be relative to you, because what mm-hmm. scares me will be different to what scares you. Mm-hmm. And so for some people, micro-bravery could be walking into a room full of people you don't know and just having a conversation mm-hmm. with someone. Okay, and so I, and, and what we've what we know is the more that we do that on a daily basis, the more confident we become in stepping into fear over time, so um, a brilliant way to do that, again, that I have done for a long time now, is there's this concept called 100 nos, where basically what you do is write down on a bit of paper 100 nos, and this is called it's called rejection therapy. And your goal is to get out there and get as many no's as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. Now what you're doing, all you're doing is reframing your mindset around a no. Most of yeah. us hate a no, but if you don't get no's, you can't get yeses. And this mm-hmm. is what people don't realise. yeses are a numbers game. Yeah. And so basically your goal is to get as many no's as you can mm-hmm. because every no you get is moving you closer to your hundred.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. So anyone who loves to tick things off, this is a great project. Yeah. But what I've realised is that every no you get moves you closer to a bigger yes. And some of the yeses that I have experienced since I employed this practice, things that I would never have imagined possible when I left Shell four years ago. Mm -hmm. Things like um, being sent to Amsterdam to speak in front of two and a half thousand people for one of of the biggest tech companies in the world, Um, Mm -hmm. being called up by the Senate to speak about my views on the future of work and the future of workers, Mm -hmm. being accepted to go to Singularity University Mm -hmm. at NASA, to work with the top AI and tech innovators in the world. And then mm-hmm. most recently, off the back of that, I attended that program and then I asked for another no and asked them mm-hmm. if they would consider inviting me back to join faculty mm-hmm. um, because of the work that we're doing around teaching people intentional adaptability. And I'm now going back to Singularity at NASA in April to be assessed to join their faculty.
1: That's unbelievable.
2: Like, mm-hmm. I would, even two years ago, if you had said to me that mm-hmm. that stuff was possible, I would have said you were nuts. <laughs> And, I, and the other one was um, I got announced as one of the most influential female entrepreneurs in Australia mm-hmm. last year. And again, it's just from get putting out there or you know asking for the things that I want. Mm-hmm. And like I say, what I've realised is I get rejected from heaps of stuff. There's mm-hmm. heaps of stuff that I ask for on a daily basis and big conferences in the US I've applied to speak at that I've been rejected from. Mm-hmm. Just this week, I got um, a decline from the Cartier Women's Awards. Mm-hmm which I applied for. I mean, yeah. I, I've been rejected from heaps of stuff, mm. but you can't realize your potential if you don't get rejected mm-hmm. because it's a numbers game.
0: Yep, yeah, 100% agree. Yeah. You know, Tim Ferriss, our, our common uh, hero, he has this, what he calls comfort challenges. And one of them, which sounds really simple, but it, for me, it was agonizing to do, was he's he like, next time you order a coffee, all you say is, can I get a 10% discount? <laughs> I like that, and to me, that I couldn't do it until I I kept go, I, I had to keep <laughs> going back until I finally just said it, and then she said no, and that was it. It wasn't a big deal, it wasn't but what, a big deal. So, and it's yeah. funny.
2: What were you afraid of?
0: i am not like I suppose it was that I almost felt like I was three years old again. Yeah, and there was all this vulnerability around and. She's a gappy person. She's never seen me before. She'll never see me again. But I don't didn't want to look foolish yeah. in front of her. There was all this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny, isn't it?
2: But it's human, like. Yeah. Human. The other thing Tim Ferriss does, because um, he's got a brilliant TED talk on fear, hmm. um, and how you know it, it changed his life. Yeah. Um, I love that he fear sets, so he doesn't goal set quarterly. Mm. He fear sets. He yeah. picks his bi- three biggest fears, mm. and he, all of all he does is plan around stepping into those fears. And that's what he attributes to taking him from someone who had severe anxiety and depression at his twenty that was living on someone's couch to now being, you know, one of the most successful entrepreneurs in the world, mm. podcasters, It's yeah. crazy.
0: Yeah, but just to. Wind up. See guys like Tim Ferriss. I found very valuable. Mm. Are there any resources, whether it's people, books, podcasts, anything that has nudged you towards who you are today?
2: Yeah, I think there's a few things that I, in the last twelve months, recent things that have made a real difference. So um, there was a book that you recommended, actually. Oh, really? Which okay. was Cal Newport's Deep oh, Work. Deep
0: Work. Yeah. So
2: yeah, yeah. Deep Work yeah. fundamentally changed things for me because. Yeah. Um, it allowed me to reconnect with intentional work Mm -hmm. and actually creating the space to do deep focus work without distraction. Mm -hmm. And that for me has been transformative. I probably work less hours than I've ever worked now. I mean, I still work a lot, but I work less hours, but I spend those hours doing things that really move me towards the things that matter to me. Mm -hmm. So that I, I advocate that book all the time, deep work. Mm -hmm. Um, Another brilliant book that I just finished called Curious, okay, uh, and that book is phenomenal because I actually think curiosity is one of the key skills, um, mm. it, and it's one of the skills we're teaching in intentional adaptability. It's one it, curiosity is a key skill for us to be able to thrive and mm. effectively navigate. I think w- probably the most complex and uncertain future we've ever faced, mm. um, and that book talks about how curiosity is innately human and yet by the nature of how we've created and engaged with technology it's been significantly diminished.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So I, I think that's a great book. The other thing that I've come across that I absolutely love is the podcast which is called The Knowledge Project.
0: Yes, Parish. Jane Parrish.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, he speaks to people that are fascinating mm. and I always get something out of every conversation
0: did you listen to the episode with Naval Ravikant? Yeah,
2: amazing. Yeah. So I think Knowledge Project. I, I'm constantly seeking out with the other book that I showed you before, mm. which is you know um, basically around the power of perception and how so much of what we believe to be true is just wrong. Mm. Um, and so what I'm constantly seeking out now, whether it's in podcasts, books, or people mm-hmm. or experiences. I'm constantly seeking to prove myself wrong.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And th- what I've realized is the more I prove myself wrong and the more I surprise myself, mm-hmm. that means I'm growing and learning. Because I think so much, of, so many of us are quite happy to live in the comfort of just believing that we're right and mm-hmm. looking at ways to reinforce that, which I think in many ways makes us ignorant. So the more wrong I am um, and anything that I can you know, bring into my sphere that's going to help me realise that, I think that the more likely I am to grow and be a better person.
0: And I think that's also a key skill, is getting, stepping outside of your silos, outside of your comfort zones, being exposed to perspectives that make you uncomfortable, I think. Yeah. What does the term meaningful work now mean to you?
2: It's funny, I don't go quiet often. (laughs) And I've never been asked that question. I think for me, and this it's funny how some things when you make these career transitions hold true the whole way through Mm -hmm. for me one of the key foundations when i started and had no idea what i was going to do Mm -hmm. i knew that whatever i did as long as it positively impacted the lives of others then that would be meaningful and so i think meaningful work for me is work that helps others realize their potential or enables them to make change in a way that's meaningful for them so i think that's probably What meaningful work it's it's positively impacting the lives of others and there's you know there's a whole host of um research behind the fact that dopamine's released Mm -hmm. when we do good things for other people it actually makes us happier it makes us feel good and Mm -hmm. so i find the more i play in that space the more fulfilled i feel Mm -hmm. and i think for me that's meaningful work
0: and final question um joseph campbell Mm -hmm. he has this quote where he says if you want to find your truth you need to follow your bliss." Yeah. What What is What is now your bliss?
2: I think my bliss is. I've realised that the older I get, and I'm sad that I've only just realised this. Mm-hmm. I feel blissful when I'm with na- what when I'm in nature, and so um, my bliss is being with people I love. So mm-hmm. my son, mm-hmm. um, and either being in the ocean, mm-hmm. camping. Mm-hmm. Um, or hiking somewhere like Wilson's Prom. I think my bliss is when I'm out with nature. And it's interesting, recently I had the opportunity to deliver a workshop in a, a national forest wow. with 20 people um, mm. and we captured a photograph of it. And I just remember looking at that photograph going, I didn't even know I could do this. And here I am with a, you know, an, an easel and a flip chart mm. and all these um, camping chairs with 20 people sitting around delivering a workshop in a forest. And that made me realize that you that that was a bliss yeah it was a way mm. for me i think work and life are so integrated now it was a way for me to do meaningful work in an environment that actually brings me bliss so yeah i think bliss is nature and looking at um, for me it's nature it's exp- having those experiences with people you love and looking mm. at how you can weave that into what you do in the every day
0: amazing yeah benny thank you so much thank you for being such an open book for being so vulnerable And and like i said when i thought of this idea you're one of the first people that came to mind and really respect what you're doing and uh, hopefully our journeys can continually evolve together which would be great
2: I'm absolutely flattered that you said that and thank you so much for having me
0: and lastly this podcast was brought to you by Dan Scahill on the buttons and with music by Vashti Silva so thank you to the both of them. Also, be sure to check out our website, disruptivebusinessnetwork.com, for all the amazing events we have coming up. Don't forget that we do have a monthly book giveaway to all our new newsletter subscribers. And again, thank you so much for listening. This is Rahul Solans. Until the next episode.